Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale and today I am going to be talking to William J. Mann, the author of Bogey and Bacall, The Surprising True Story of Hollywood's Greatest Love Affair. It's an amazing book, rich in novelistic detail about one of the most iconic couples Hollywood has ever boasted, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp of their day, you could say. We have a wide-ranging conversation, and I'm sure you're going to like it. Please remember to follow me on Twitter, DrJonty, and you can follow me on threads with the same address, uh, the same username, DrJonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y, which is also my Instagram (laughs) And so it's all across the socials. You can do that. That's That would be wonderful. Remember to like, subscribe if you haven't already, and leave a review if you wish to encourage other people with similar interests to listen to the podcast. Before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Bogart is my, uh, yeah, he's definitely one of my my heroes in ter- cinematically. I think. Uh, how, how what was your first sort of entry entry into into the the world of Bogart and Bacall? You know, I I didn't approach this with a fan's eye. I, I wasn't. I mean, I I'd seen you know the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, of course, and and like uh, Bogart, but 
I can't say that he was someone that I, you know, I, I was uh, jonesing to do a biography about. You know, I was mm. I was more in the Cary Grant camp or the um, William Powell, someone like that. But when my editor suggested that that I take on both Bogey and Bacall at the same time, and kind of, you know, see their two stories in relation to each other, suddenly I. I became very intrigued by this man. And mm. because, you know, what I found out was his screen persona was so very different from who he was personally and, and how he had grown up. And how did that persona emerge? And how much of it was truth? How much of it was fiction? And he became much more interesting to me. And and mm. consequently, he became a much more interesting actor to me. And I realized how really good he is. I mean, it's... You know, when you go back and you look at what he actually was doing there on the screen, of course, he makes it seem so effortless. And and that was part of his, his appeal. But he was really working at it. He was he was really doing some amazing work. And so he became much more fascinating to me. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those contradictions of re I mean, I often have friends who say, oh, I don't like looking at making of documentaries because it ruins the illusion. And I guess the same could be said to be true of biographies that you, 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 your job is kind of to deconstruct the very thing that we love. Yes. And you have to do that understanding that, you know, we are dealing with some uh, treasures here. We're dealing with, with um, icons, you know, illusions that people have. And, and my job, as I see it, isn't simply to isn't at all to dispel illusions as much it is as it is to understand those illusions and mm -hmm. put them into context. I have always found the real story of uh, whether they uh, of, of actors or of a film or a director, I found the real story is much more fascinating than the the story that's sold. Sometimes sometimes there's you know there's truth to some of the stories that are told. I mean, I've also written about Elizabeth Taylor who hewed very closely to her legend. Um mm. but others did not and and to me to do that it's it's not an attempt to tear anything down but to understand and and I think make make their stories even more interesting. I you know if if someone wants to read a book about, you know, the making of uh, the Maltese Falcon or the African Queen. That's great. And that's wonderful. My interest has always been about how did these movies and how did these actors get to where they are? And what did did they tell us about the particular times they were living in? And, you know, and what do they still tell us about who we are today? So that's really what I'm most interested in when I'm when I'm doing a biography. And and Bogart, of course, comes some distance. You know, we see this tough guy persona, and I would always have pegged him as someone lower middle class, if not working class, as you know, in terms of his um, his upbringing or background from the streets. You know, from the mean right. streets, and yet, and yet, of course, he comes from quite wealthy stock, quite good family, and 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 you know, he's he's kind of his first experiences of acting are sort of anyone for tennis i mean yeah you say he never actually said that line but it's that kind of role that he's doing yeah you know and the studios wanted you to get that impression they worked very hard to give that impression um but in the beginning he was he was this handsome debonair 
aristocrat who was cast in those roles. He was often the the guy who woos the girl and then dumps the girl. He was the cad. Um, then he started playing these these kind of um, Latin lovers, um, which because he was so dark, you know, he he had this this role, and and the women loved him. He was he was a Valentino on the stage um, in his very earliest years, and and that the studio did a lot to try to distance from because that was not going to sell with the hum- Humphrey Bogart gangster image of the 1930s. Mm. And his family, of course, was sort of like um, you make the point that they're quite cold. Or, yeah, you can't remember it, whether he was particularly hugged or uh, by his mother, uh, mm-hmm. particularly um, th- that. I mean, I don't want to get too Freudian uh, on your ass, <laughs> but that <laughs> seems to you know what I mean? That, that seems to be a, a feeling that that's where his emotional insecurity might be coming from as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can't avoid that. I mean, I've I've encountered this with other people I've written about, um, Catherine Hepburn, John Schlesinger, people who grew up in upper class white Anglo-Saxon Protestant families in that period. Almost all were treated at a distance from their parents. They mm. they were raised often more directly by nannies and and nurses and um, governesses. There, there was a sense in that culture, in that WASP upper class culture, that to encourage your children too much, to praise them, was to make them soft. You know, it was a um, it, it happens too often in these stories for me not to take that into account, because Bogart himself wrote about that. He wrote very frankly about how, you know, he grew up with, you know, the closest he ever got was maybe a clap on the back of his uh, on his shoulder, you know, on a birthday or something like that. Um, and it was it was very cold, um, very with withdrawing. And and then Bogart, because he wasn't performing in the way that young men of his class were supposed to perform, not only was he getting the distance and the lack of affection, he was getting the, um, you know, the actual disapproval of his parents and the condemnation of his parents. So that that imprinted him and and was with him for the rest of his life the toughness that will come later and will become part of his persona encouraged by the studio department there was an element of that in in of truth in that in terms of the violence and in terms of the fact that he was always a bit of a rowdy um even though he was an upper class rowdy rather than uh rather than a sort of dock dock fighter or something um but that that starts off pretty early on Yes, you know, oftentimes when you're told that you are don't measure up, you know, you can either accept that or you can fight back against it. And at various times, Bogey accepted it. At times, he would he would um, fight back and say, you know, well, the hell with you, and, and he'd swing a punch. Um, mm. You know, he was also small. I mean, he was only he only stood about five seven, and you know, he was thin. He, you know, it's had sloping shoulders. And often guys who are built that way, you know, they become pugnacious because they have to be. And, you know, so he had a lot of chips on his shoulder and and he began to drink early. So the alcohol spurred that that temper, that rage. So, yeah, he he did have that um, fighting spirit. That's true with his characters, um, kind of a smoldering anger that could could um, come come through. Um, 
so that that part of the the uh, image was was based in reality and and you know you you're very forthright in your sort of assessment of him as an alcoholic as well which is something that having read previous biographies tends to get sort of soft soaked a little bit more and and characterized as you know he's hard drinking rat packer you know the, the and 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 you're like no he's an alcoholic Stop. He, he was an alcoholic and yeah. and it, it it you know it defined his life in so many ways um and i think it's it's uh, you know a great example of of uh comparing him with his his third wife mayo metho who was also an alcoholic but she's always portrayed as the the problem you know she's always played as as the um the one who would, would get out of control when she drank you know, Bogey was a good old guy. You know, good old guys are supposed to drink. Women are not supposed to drink, and yet, so many times his his drinking threatened his career. Threatened, you know, you know. There's the example one of the last times. You know, when he was called into court because the woman accused him of of, of shoving her, and you know, many many times his career almost ended because of his alcoholism. And he never, and, and this is something you point out in the book as well. You know, these were different times. There weren't interventions. There weren't the the there right. weren't, wasn't a rehab. There wasn't a culture of even talking about this, or even naming it. You know, properly. There are so many points in this book where I'm thinking about you know how this wouldn't happen today, or it would certainly have a different ending if it happened today. Um, and, and he would not be considered this beloved star that he that he has uh, that he's come down through the ages to us. So, so again, that that I think that's interesting. It, reading the book is you you really get a feel for the Hollywood of the times as well. This isn't just about Bogart and Bacall; it's also about what Hollywood was like at that time. Yeah, it, it was part of the culture for men to drink and to act like that. It, you know, if you didn't, you were you were seen as maybe being a little too prissy, or you know, Clark mm. Gable drank, Spencer Tracy drank. Um, uh, it was it was to be expected. Yet at the same time, when he didn't show up for work and and the, the bosses were getting uncomfortable with the fact that he um, wasn't coming in, or you know, he was um, getting into fights on the set. This you know this this happened and he was um to the public the, the drinking was used almost as a way of bolstering his macho star credentials but behind the scenes in in the studios they were getting increasingly concerned with what was going on yeah the, i mean there's so so many great stories in there uh i mean there's one that crosses over here which was really i don't want to spoil your book too much because these people should go and read it and, uh, and get these stories but it's so rich in anecdotes I'm, I'm sure i won't be able to there's uh where uh, sort of a journalist comes around to his house and he goes to answer the door and then he goes back and gets a drink because he should have a drink in his hand when he answers the door because otherwise the journalist won't see the bogart that he's expecting um, yeah i love that story that's that's a great story i thought that epitomized exactly what was going on here it was a period when it was later in his life and he was you know thanks to Bacall he was um limiting his his alcohol consum consumption but it was now so much a part of his persona that Humphrey Bogart who, who answers the door without a drink in hand people would say what's wrong here and in fact there were stories like that in the in the 1950s the early 1950s like what's wrong with Humphrey Bogart he wasn't drunk when we saw him last time you know <laughs> yeah, drinking and, and smoking constantly. Um, I always um, think, like as a side note, I always wonder what, what 
what those Hollywood people smelled like. Because, oh, I mean, <laughs> before the smoking ban came in in the UK in public places, I used to go to pubs and your your clothes would reek, oh, yeah. everything would reek, you know. You'd wake up the next morning and it would smell like you were still in the club. I mean, your, it was your clothes, it hung on you. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It was and it, yet it was seen as glamorous. I think the the idea of, you know, smoke hanging in, in throughout a room or even on someone's breath was seen as kind of glamorous and edgy and exciting. Mm, mm, yeah. And, yeah. And I guess if everybody's smoking, nobody cares. It's just like everything. Right, right. It just smells like air after a while. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, uh, and you mentioned um, his third wife, who I remember meeting her via David Niven's uh, The Moon is a Balloon, in which he has a, mm. a very funny section about uh bogart and bacall and the battling bogarts that's what that's yes. what they sort of become known as and yes. you're you're uh, i think uh what you write is a really interesting corrective in in saying hey she was not the you know she wasn't the baddie here you know right where if she was the baddie there was another baddie involved too you right. know they, they they egged each other on and he was equally as culpable for the uh, the failure of that marriage if not more, because because in fact at the time they married, Bogart was still under the impression that uh, you know his wife should put her career second to his, which Mayo did. It was she was very happy. I mean, given the fact that her career was also in the tank at the time, she didn't really have much choice. But um, you know she did, and she really became a huge booster for him. And uh, you know um, their drinking became legendary, but. It wasn't as if the stories are always positioned as she's the one uh, assaulting him. When you know, when you when I interviewed some people, they said, you know what, he he was he was swinging at her too at times, and mm. that's sad to say, but it, that was the fact. It was um, there's an awful lot of misogyny in mm. in Bogart's story, and especially true when it comes to Mayo Metho, that she somehow was this monster. John Houston took joy in in humiliating her in his memoir. It just it, after a while it just began to become very cringy, and uh, I do hope I've provided some some form of a corrective there. Mm, yeah, I mean Houston's uh, uh, autobiography, an open book, is is he he's got form he's there's kind of litany of misogynistic um yeah. portraits and i love john houston as a director oh he's, absolutely and as an act, and a wonderful actor as well chinatown yeah. obviously but yeah. um yeah his his vision of women was was unreconstructed which in other words just bigoted <laughs> yeah absolutely you know and and howard hawks the same thing i mean it's it's these these directors who today probably would have been called out by the Me Too movement, um, and rightfully so. And yet you can't take away from the fact that their work, um, you know, it, it's it's brilliant. But mm. I also think we have to understand who these people were at the same time. Yeah, I think we've got to get rid of the dichotomy of like cancellation, which I don't think right. even necessarily exists as much as people worry about. Um, I mean, I come from a literature background, so... I'm kind of used to reading anti-Semites and and racists, yeah. and you can't you can't avoid it when you're a historian or 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 a, a, you know literary historian or a social historian. It was there: racism, um, sexism, uh, homophobia. Th that was part of the culture, and yeah. it's there. And I think rather than try to cancel the the people, cancel John Houston, for example, show the films, but then talk about who he was mm -hmm. and. And where do we see this in in their work? If we if we do, um, 
And I think, yeah, absolutely. We need to tell the full story, which is what I do with my work. I, I tell the full story um, rather than trying to tear anybody down. I just say, hey, here's here's the reality. Here are the facts. Now let's take a look at their work and their life and and make sense of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well because uh, because I have so much admiration for Bogart as an actor and mm. as a legend, and also sort of politically, I I, I feel uh, there are moments where I really align with him. Um, but you, you you've got to get away from these buts. You've got to go, you've got to start using ands as a conjunction. You know, it's got to yes, be like sure. you know, right. he was an alcoholic and violent and a Democrat and a, a great actor, not but right. as if there's some right. sort of like, we're making some sort of equation. It was right. just, these were all part of the same thing. Let's, let's move on a little bit to, to Betty Bacall because, um, because I mean, one, one thing about the, uh, your, I, I know less about Betty Bacall because obviously I've, I've, I've been, a, a, you know, I've nailed my colors to the mass as a bogey fan to, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I hesitate to use the word fan because it's uh you know, but yeah, I I that's definitely I'm going to have to mea culpa that one. Um, but with Betty Bacall, one thing I I uh sort of came out at me was um the fact that she was Jewish and the fact that her Jew, uh her Jewishness had to be suppressed and had to be sort of written out of the picture. And the fact that I'm a big fan of Bogart and therefore I I know about Bacall quite a bit. And I and that wasn't a, a thing that sort of sprang to mind instantly. That came as a little bit of a surprise. A kind of like, oh, maybe I did know that, but you know, it wasn't fully present. It shows how successful that that sort of um, realignment has been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it was astounding to go back and see how deliberate that was, and also see her discomfort with that, and mm. and her family's discomfort with that. Um, you know her ambition at that point she was probably willing to do whatever the studio told her write out my family change my name but at the same time she did have some some conflict with that and and some uh you know personal struggles with that but but in fact you know she she uh, was deliberately uh cast as 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 something she was not um howard hawks who she was under personal contract with did not even know she was jewish when she first signed her and she was terrified of what he might say when he found out because he was very open with his anti-semitism he would make you know anti-semitic jokes all the time and she would cringe and she would sit there and say what do I do? Do I ruin my career? Do I stand up for myself? Um, in the midst of all this, her grandmother died, who was an immigrant from Romania. And I think her death really bothered her because she felt she was um, selling out her grandmother, who she loved very much. And later in her life, uh, Bacall did make a point to speak to various Jewish organizations in her memoir, talked about being Jewish. So it was it was almost a relief for her at that point, like saying, OK, you know, I was forced to keep this quiet for so long. And now I'm going to now I'm going to shout it to the world because that's who I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it comes as a, a moment which is really interesting, I think, where she has started a relationship with Bogart and she says to him, I've got some. I've got a, something to tell you, and she tells him she's Jewish, and he's like, "That's fine. You know, what's what's the problem?" And it's kind of like, "Oh, great! There's there's the bogey I love." You know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, bogey really didn't have, uh, you know, a lot of prejudices, and, um, and and those that he did, he he worked through them in the course of his life. You know, he was, 
you know, um, I, I came away with a great deal of admiration for him about his relationship with the world because he grew. And I, I think Bacall was a big part of that. And he was, um, uh, you know, he, he was a, mis a misogynist or at least a sexist in the, in the early parts of his life and, and treated his wives with um, with a degree of chauvinism for for certain. But by the end of his life, you know, he was proud of, of Bacall and he started to understand that women could play an equal role in in his life in in society and and i think a lot of that had to do with the fact that when he and bacall went to washington as you reference um in 1947 to speak out against the house on american activities committee you know there were an equal number of women with them as as there were men and i think he saw himself standing shoulder to shoulder now with women and and actually um making a difference Mm, mm, absolutely and that, that's uh that that is a, a moment which we well let's come back to that in a second because i want to go back a little bit to to betty bacall who sort of becomes lauren bacall as a result of howard hawks he, he re renames right. her um but the other thing that that strikes me is how young she is and that's something you underline that she's going through all these really difficult phases having to negotiate you know, dangerous men who have uh, re have records are on on the record with being quite predatorial in this in their hunt for for young women and sex, and she has to negotiate all of that, and it's really it, the the unlikeliness of it really comes out in the book. Yeah, she was she became brilliant in how to deal with predatory men, and mm. I think that was lar largely because she had a lot of experience with that in new york she was this ambitious young woman very pretty very statuesque um who figured out okay i can get this audition because this man finds me attractive but now how do i keep it at this level of of professionalism and not let it go any farther and and i really think she she was successful with that because she kept her her uh, uh her boundaries and and i think there were times when you know, reading between the lines in her memoir where she might have been able to get a little something more, but she suddenly withdraws from a project or writes, I didn't get it. And I think she realized I'm not going to go in that direction. I'm going to, you know, step back. And and um, she tells that funny story of um, Walter Pigeon, you know, trying to corner her in a hotel room and how mm. she kept at bay and got out of there. Um, so she knew how to do it. But at the same time, Hollywood was much more difficult. She was very young and she was very ambitious and uh she was scared there she she confided to friends and she was scared of not only was she scared of hawks finding out that she was jewish but she was scared that he would um put the move on her and mm -hmm. she was encouraged at times to go spend some alone time with him in his um in his office and she never did that and part of the reason i think she hooked on to bogey so quickly during the making of to have and have not was because okay i'm safe here this guy mm. is not going to make a move on me. Um, and well, he eventually gives her a kiss, but but she knew that he was not predatory in that way. That was that was another thing about Bogey that really came through is that he was not someone who made passes at his leading ladies. He 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 you know, there was never any kind of unwanted sexual advances on women that he worked with or on the set, um, tended to be faithful to his wives for the most part. Um, so she felt safe with him.
Yeah, and he's sort of like uh, you describe him as a kind of romantic in that he's you know he really wants to go home to uh, to you know I mean when when he does go home when he's not out on a bender uh, right. he he wants to have that that one relationship that he's really in love with someone That's right. um, r- rather than you know a series of flings uh, and he, she even describes that kiss from in her memoir as not being a lunge being sort right. of a sort of right. tentative sort of right romantic kiss um so they come together on to have and have not which which like many of these films which come up it's always really funny to read how films that we now regard as classics were at the time at the time of their making and conception were often seen as far less than than what they would become you know casablanca is one of the best examples where they're in in the commissary saying you know what is this piece of shit it's got got an ending right yeah and to yeah. have and have not was kind of seen as sort of like oh this is another chance to cash in on casablanca yeah yeah oh. absolutely it's so you know you can see the imprint of casablanca all throughout i mean it, this is just another reworking of the casablanca formula and and the film itself isn't that great mm. but it's made wonderful it's made so watchable so much fun so exciting because of this chemistry between bogey and bacall and and everybody else is good in it. The actors are good. The, the atmosphere is good. Um, but the story itself is pretty thin. And um, so, yeah, I don't think there was an, a big sense that this was going to be a great classic at the time. Um, but, Bo, you know, Bogart and Bacall, they just they just brought that that extra char- charisma. And it just it just it's so much fun. I, I just showed it to a, a group of people who had never seen it before. And and they're like, this was wonderful. You know, the, this, it's crackling. It's, mm. and I think, you know, one of the great things about To Have and Have Not is that it, it's a rare case where the moment Steve and Slim fall in love on, on the screen is the exact same moment Bogart and Bacall fall in love in life. You know, it, that's really happening there, right there on the screen. Absolutely. And that scene was, wasn't that like her rehearsal scene as well, her, her audition? Yeah, wasn't supposed to be in the film. It was yeah. it was a, a little bit of dialogue that uh, um, they gave the call for for one of her rehearsals or screen tests. And and they liked it so much. They said, put it in, in the film because it actually doesn't really make sense narrative wise. Why is she suddenly, you know, they've just met. Why is she suddenly asking him to whistle? It it. But it works so perfectly, and and it's just so much fun to watch. Every time I, I watch it, I, I get I get chills. I, yeah, I think that I mean Casablanca is always going to be a favorite of mine because it's you know it's just got yeah. everything. It's got absolutely everything, yeah. and and everything. To, to have and have not has you know so many elements which are obviously sort of not quite as good copies. So the piano player right. is not as good as you know uh, as in mm-hmm. Casablanca, right. and, but. Oh. That word fun runs all the way through the film and at no other film have I ever seen. I remember watching it for the first time at a friend's house on a videotape, which is how long ago it was. Um, and I remember seeing the end where she walks across the bar and she just does a little shimmy and it ends there. And it's like, there's yeah. nothing in the film that says the film should end there. It's like, there's the plot no, right. hasn't ended. There's been no sort of right. violent thing that's, and it's just that shimmy is so good. It's like, they go, that's it. That's the end of the movie. You know? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Absolutely. She's, you know, there's a moment also in the film 
where, you know, she's so sultry, you know, she mm. does sultry so well. But there's a one moment in this in the film, I think I actually write about it in the book where she smiles and you just see the joy that's beneath that sultriness. You see the the youth, the almost innocence. And, you know, she she's never really better than she was in Tav and Have Not. She's just so raw and so natural that it mm. just it's no wonder it was such a smash and no wonder that her reviews were stratospheric at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, she, she goes and does another film, which is like uh, The Confidential Agent, I think it's called. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, and you talk about a, it being like treated as a comedy and it's not a comedy, but they're just, everybody's right. just laughing at the screen. Yeah, it was it was a a very fast reversal of fortune. So mm. it was good that uh, The Big Sleep came along when it did. Mm. And The Big Sleep, um, uh, another magnificent film, and another Howard Hawks film, which is much... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. More fun than it is well plotted shall we say you know the raymond chandler uh william faulkner is is writing on both of the films i think big sleep both of them right yeah yeah Yeah. or parts of them yeah and you talk about him writing sort of like sheets of dialogue and them going we can't (laughs) this isn't (laughs) a film (laughs) this is not a novel Um, yeah yeah, but 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 they but hawks wanted faulkner because yes there were too many words but that's what he wanted the, the characters to say so let's let's uh boil that down and find a way to say that but exactly the point he's making yeah and i agree the big sleep is is another one of those films that is just so watchable so much fun um the the interactions between the characters the the, the set design the lighting um but yeah the plot sometimes i i had to sit there and say well exactly what's happening right now <laughs> But who cares? Because it's so much fun. Absolutely. I mean, I, there's this famous story about William Faulkner phoning up Raymond Chandler and saying, who killed so-and-so? And Chandler right. didn't know right. either. And he didn't know either. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's so, that's so, I, I, that's, I, I love because the film does exactly what it needs to do. You don't you don't need right. to have that plot um, right. uh, being sort of bulletproof. Um, right. It's about things like Bogart getting in off the rain uh, from the rain with the in the bookstore. But yes, oh, I, with with the um, uh, D- um, Dorothy Malone. Exactly. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. She's what amazing. a scene. Yeah, what a scene. And you know, let's pull the uh, the blinds down. You know, it's so evocative. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's a birth of a Hollywood cliche. That must be one of the first times you've had that sort of taking the glasses off the off yeah. the girl and suddenly realizing right. she's yeah. pretty. Yeah. You know? yeah, right. Yeah, she was she was a knockout, right? <laughs> exactly. That's so that's such a I love that film. It's such a, a wonderful um it's kind of like a, a, same with to have and have not and a lot of Howard Hawks films. There's a sort of hangout quality to it where you're just enjoying hanging out with them yes absolutely bringing up baby the same thing you know mm. even the slapstick but you love these people you just want you can't get enough of them so uh, going at this point they're sort of riding high with these movies and they're, and they're doing really really well and it seems to be a partnership uh the divorce is relatively easy it's, going, it's kind of surprisingly easy even though bogey feels uh guilty about um the divorce and 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 what it you know, and and his now ex-wife, but um, but here comes the House of American Activities with its uh, you know, black cloud and its uh, moral uh, quandaries, and 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 this is the point where there is a, a, a another sort of reversal in that they march off to Washington, full of righteous fire, and then it's sort of. They, Bogart gets cold feet. Is that is that is that right? Is that how you saw it? Uh, partly, yes. I mean, yeah. there was certainly a lot of righteous fire, and they they were you know a group of actors and directors and writers, not politicians. They didn't think through how is this going to play in the media. Um, they didn't have you know the the studio publicist saying, "Hey, this is probably not the best idea," or if you're going to do it, do it this way. They just went off and did it. And I admire them for that. I mean, it right. was these were these were citizens, um, American citizens who did not like what they saw happening and they didn't see enough criticism of what was happening. And and whether you agree with their point of view or not, they had every right to to go there and say what they did. But they weren't prepared for a Washington press that was nothing like the Hollywood press where, you know, where, you know, the Hollywood press is all, you know, in, in bed with the studios and the publicists are there. These were some hard bitten journalists who were very gleeful to try to take down these dilettantes as they saw them from, from Hollywood who were coming to um, make some noise. So I don't think bogey so much got cold feet. In fact, they left, he was, they were still making radio um, statements even after, after that, difficult reception from the from the media um but it was when it the drumbeat continued it, this was mm. we see it today you know it's it was you know we were talking about cancel culture there was certainly a sense in that moment that you didn't have the term or, or even the concept but there was a sense that humphrey bogart had to be punished he mm. could not have could not get away with doing that so um you see the criticism just mounting and mounting and mounting so finally he has to say well look if they if there are communists among uh the hollywood 10 well they of course should they should be um uh punished for that or they should be singled out for that but i went to you know defend the the, the cause and and every time he tried to defend their actions he sounded more slippery and more um uh, trying to work his way out of it to the point where eventually of course he pens that piece um in photoplay saying i'm i am no communist bacall did not want him to write it um his son has written about how bogart regretted it the moment he did it but 
you know, such was the the tension, such were the times. And, you know, the stakes were so very, very high at that particular moment. People were losing their jobs. People were going to jail. And so I, I think he felt he had no other choice. Mm, yeah, that's a real sense of, uh, I mean, I think that's that's really well brought out in the book. There's the, a the sense of, of just the amount of pressure that was put on. And also the pressure that added to Bogart's already exact well, I'm not sure if exaggerated is is necessarily fair but insecurity um I mean because he's always looking out over his shoulder and again as a viewer or as an audience member you tend to think of Bogart as being this unassailable somebody who doesn't think twice about his status or his position in the industry because he's he's this huge icon but of course he even at the height of his success he's turning around and thinking that william holden's coming coming through and during the war he's thinking yeah jimmy stewart's off off fighting and i'm i'm here and you know clark gable is almost as old as me and he's still he went and signed up so there's all this this simmering insecurity that in the, in the background and you know because is has a lot of, uh, as you say does a lot of good for him in bolstering him and helping him out but even there there must be some sense that you know he's there's a huge generation gap and he's um you know he's got this young wife that he's he, you know, is is he going to live up to his le- legend with her? Even yes, there was an incredible um, fear that he was going to lose her to a younger man. Yeah, and and you know, today we look at the an age difference of, you know, she was twenty when they were married. He was forty five, so that's a twenty five year age gap. And you know, we rightfully ask questions about it. You know, love knows no age. So I'm not trying to say that these relationships can't work, but but they do come with challenges. Mm. And, and as Bacall and, and, and Bogart, as their marriage continued, and as she got into her early 20s, and she's suddenly, you know, in the prime of her life, her, her um, you know, she's, she's vital and she's exciting and she's still beautiful. And he's getting older and sicker and and more frail. Yeah, he became very insecure about that. In fact, a number of people said that his greatest fear in that period was that he was going to lose her. Um, and of course, there were moments where she was moving away from him sexually and and or at least romantically, mm-hmm. emotionally. We don't know if if there was a you know a sexual infidelity, but we do know that. Um, there was an emotional infidelity uh, on both their parts, but mostly with her. And that was that was very, very frightening for him, the, the idea of losing her. Mm. And the fact that he's got all these people around him who sort of admire him, like people like Frank Sinatra, who sort of is famously sort of has him as the the I don't know den leader of the of the right. rat pack and all that sort of stuff and yet oh god I I don't know if I'd want Frank Sinatra as an enemy or as a friend I'm not sure which would be worse <laughs> yeah, I, I agree yeah he was a bit of a snake in the grass there I think um especially towards the end you know Sinatra did admire Bogey so I, that's why my my gut tells me that the friendship with Bacall while Bogey was still alive, remained that. But I think there was an incredible amount of flirtation, nonetheless, and a lot of of um, attention being paid back to each other. But I think, yeah, he was uh, he could be very unscrupulous. But at the same time, I think his admiration for Bogey would have would have kept that relationship platonic, at least while Bogey was alive. 
Yeah, yeah, and I don't don't even want to speculate as to the time frame that he would consider respectful. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, so you you had the illness is is a sort of tragic part of of this this story because you know I mean it's obviously like you know no shit Sherlock moment of the guy who smokes all the time dies of cancer, and and it, and it feels like there are a lot of. I mean, there feels like there are a lot of parallels with other stars of that generation. You know, I, I think immediately of someone like Spencer Tracy as well, uh, you know, another great love affair that you actually mentioned in the introduction as well as a, a sort of a possible competitor for the title of greatest Hollywood love affair. Right. It also feels tragic because it also feels like he's coming into his own as an actor even more, if anything. Yes. Oh, absolutely. You look at the Kane mutiny, right? I mean, it's just he's... Oh, he's magnificent in that. And, mm. you know, had he lived, I think he would have gone on to uh, because he, because at that point he was more versatile than than Gable, for mm. example. Mm. Um, he would have I think he would have gone on to do some really interesting work in, in the 1960s, mm. um, and even into the 1970s. So, yeah, it was it his loss was really felt. And and yet at the same time, I think his illness um, in some ways provided the closure for so many things in his life um, and in his marriage. So it, it's, you know, obviously he much, he would have much preferred to live, I'm sure. And we would have much preferred to have him live. But I, but I think during that illness, there was some sense of closure with some of those long-term issues that he'd been struggling with all his life. Mm, mm, mm. And and when you see him, uh, I mean, one other film I just want need to need to mention is uh, as proof of his status as an actor, above and beyond creating the bogey image, if you like, uh, is the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a real step out. And I also want to mention at the other end of his career, right near the the start of his career, certainly as a leading man. Uh, the Black Legion, which I think is a really right. underrated film, in which he definitely is not playing Humphrey Bogart. He's playing right. a character, you know. Right. Well, I agree on Black Legion. It's 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 phenomenal what he is able to do in that film. Um, and I also think you know um, it's also a film that helped shape his political views. I believe, um, and he he is creating a character that is, you know, goes from sympathetic to absolutely um evil complete mm. complete evil and yet he's so fascinating so so um you know you can't stop watching him and the, so and the same thing is true with sierra madre where his he's he is so good in that film and the fact that he dies i think you know 25 minutes before the film ends and he just kind of disappears yet he still hangs over that film i mean it's 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 his film from start to finish um as good as walter houston is and and but at the same time bogart bogart could be really scary on film even in, in um you know some of the, some of his last films he could be very scary because he you know petrified forest he knew how to project evil but with a this kind of um strange core of humanity under underneath it all and that's i think what makes his portrayal so compelling because you're terrified but at the same time you recognize this person as being a human being and and perhaps that makes it even scarier 
Yeah, yeah, but it's much more credible. Um, you know, I even like his horror film. I know, I know, he wasn't a fan of that. Oh, well, it, was, it was ridiculous, but um, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, I'll watch any, I'll watch anything with him in, and indeed have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so then, following his death, you have sort of a, a difficult moment for uh, Lauren Bacall in the sense of. You know, she has a long, long afterlife, and it, right. uh, it's interesting. I think you mentioned this r- near the beginning of the book as well, that you know, even later on when she's getting her her Oscar, she's kind of she's burnishing this legend of her and and Bogey, really to the detriment of kind of her own much longer life and and her right. you know her children to some degree as well. Right. Oh, absolutely. She, she, I think, I think Bacall realized after Bogie's death that this was always going to be the defining aspect of her life. This, this relationship was, was going to be it, you know, there wasn't going to be a second relationship that, you know, she could, she could find something with. And I think for a while she hoped that her career might, might bring her to a level where she was bogey's equal um and that she could have done a career after his death mm. but in fact you know the the disastrous relationship with frank sinatra her her falling out with many of her hollywood friends she she flees hollywood goes uh first to london then to new york um and and tries to find herself tries to find a new way forward and she is somewhat successful in that. I mean, she does win two Tony Awards for Broadway, but I also think she realized, okay, well, part of my legacy, part of my uh, my persona is always going to be as one half of Bogey and Bacall. So why not take, take charge of that image, that legend, and make it exactly what I want it to be because that's what I can leave behind. Um, and she's very industrious at that. She's... Um, she works very hard at burnishing that legend. And as I've said in the book, you know, unlike many Hollywood legends, there's mostly truth in the Bogey and Bacall legend, you know, but she just makes sure all those little parts, it's a little too messy. Um, she makes sure as those get those get burnished out. Yeah, there's a really there's a real sad episode where her dog dies, I think. And yeah, oh, and, yeah. She, and she sort of has she thinks I've got to be with Bogey because but he's out drinking with a pal. Right. And and you know, as you say, it's it's very interesting that she doesn't leave that episode out, even as she's sort of skating over what is obviously a very cruel and traumatic moment for her. Right, you know, and and there were there many moments like that, and she, you know, her 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 memoir, at least her first one, is is really really a, a, an unusual Hollywood story because mm. she's very candid and so much is said between the lines and part of my job was to read her memoir and say okay what's she actually saying here what what's between these two lines um without reading into them but you know it's understanding that she is telling us more than what's simply on the page and and not a lot of stars do that it's all fluff and and uh, um but she really does try to tell the truth but it's notable what parts she includes like that so that's mm. important um, but it's also interesting when she doesn't include certain things, like the fact that um, her uncles did not come to her their wedding. You know, it was something that mm. clearly indicates that they were not happy with the marriage. Um, and that's something that she needed to iron out of the legend. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And going on with her, with her, uh, I mean, how many marriages does she have afterwards? She has, J- she marries Jason Robard. Yeah, just Jason, Jason Robard. And yeah, you know, she knows how to pick him. Nothing, no bloody alcoholic. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yes. exactly, exactly. And part of, partly, I think she thought, well, I've dealt with Bogey's alcoholism. I can deal with Jason's. But, but you know, Jason was you know an incredible actor but he was never humphrey bogart and so mm-hmm. um i think you know she found that this is not somebody that i can that i can manage mm-hmm. and and the relationship just was simply never that deep he didn't want to get married he did you know mm-hmm. he right i can't i don't want to say she tricked him but but you know right from the start he didn't want to get married and yet he did and they had a child and and he was not happy whereas bogey was very happy to mar- be married Mm-hmm. It's almost like yeah, she was. I mean, even with uh, it's a little bit like in Once Upon a Time in a Hollywood, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when um, Steve McQueen watches Sharon Tate dancing with Roman Polanski and uh, Jay Spearing and says, uh, "Oh, he's, she's definitely got a type." <laughs> it's, it felt yes, like right. that. With Jason Robards and that uh, absolutely type, uh, yeah, craggy faced. Oh yeah, yep. She definitely had a type. Um, yeah. I mean, I love Lauren Bacall's sort of, uh, you know, becoming this grand dame and becoming sort of, she she has that wonderful uh, cameo on The Sopranos when she, uh, you know, and she seems to enjoy sort of playing with her her role, even though um, she's also very much committed to, as you say, sort of retaining and burnishing that legend. A little bit like a, a, a band which is quite happy to play its greatest hits. It doesn't need to play any new material, you know? That's that's a great that's a great analogy. Yes, I think so. And, and you know, she was very happy to talk about Bogey. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I realized early on, I mean, and, and her son Stephen wrote about this in his book, and I talk about it, you know, she, right from the start, it was all about Bogey. Um, mm. You know, her children actually came a, a distant second. Mm. And that 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 was that made their relationship difficult all their lives. I mean, you know, both she was she was open about that. They've been open about that. Less so with her her son with um, Jason Robards, because it was a different dynamic. But um, yeah, and I, and I think for a moment after Bogey died, she tried to get away from that. I'm not going to make Bogey so central in my life anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was inevitable. She couldn't get away from it. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, she was, so, e- even when he died, she was still so young. She had still so much still so much time young. to live. Yeah. But it, it's, it's maybe fascinating to us as a, you know, drawing back a little bit and looking at this idea that you have as a, as a sort of subtitle of your book of this famous Hollywood love affair. Um, I think we are fascinated by this crossover between real life and fiction at this moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see you, another uh, love affair that you mentioned, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, the pleasure, sometimes the only pleasure in watching some of their films is in trying to trace Okay, are they arguing as the characters, or are they arguing? You know, even yeah. the best one of their best films together, uh, "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?" I, right. You really oh, are yeah. sitting there going, "Is this anger and spite in the play, or is this just them?" You get you get a sense that that this same exact scene has happened, you know, beyond the cameras. They've they've been rehearsing this their whole lives, yes, all, yeah. all their lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and the the same is true of Bogey and Bacall. That you you know that sim- as you say, you know that the the moment we fall in love with them as as characters, and they fall in love right. as characters, they're falling in love with each other as real people. Um, That's right. Do, I mean. 
I, I'm wondering if that happens anymore. I mean, I, presumably there's, there's no reason it shouldn't, but it, it's almost as if we've become, we have become more squeamish of, about that sort of real life and, and, and movie life crossovers. Yeah, you know, it's just people try to compare, you know, today to classic Hollywood. And it's 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 becoming increasingly difficult to do that mm. because the form has changed. Right. And the 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 way we watch moving images has changed. Um, we don't really go into theaters anymore to watch them. They, they aren't they aren't 15 feet in size they aren't you know gargantuan images in the dark you know they're on smaller screens in our living rooms and our you know on our computers and our phones and it's it's really become much more um you know it's it's too cliche to say the magic is lost because there's always going to be magic in in things um in in stories that are told on the screen and no matter what the size is but there was a, a there was a mystique there was a mystery um that existed up until probably the middle part of the 1980s and then got less and less from there um and probably was beginning to get less and less from the the end of the studio system in the, the 1960s and and so it, it's hard to know what's real and what's not because so many of the actors and performers today um, they retain their characters on their Instagram feeds, or they, they, um, there's they they try to sh- show you parts of their life. So you, that kind of all bleeds into their their on screen performances. You know, the very best actors I think do rise above this somewhat. You know, a Kate Blanchett or you know Meryl Streep or something. But but at the same time, so many of the 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 you know actors celebrities performers today i'm not sure the right word you know it's it's a 24 7 job now mm, you know it's mm. you're being you um everywhere no matter no matter whether you're shooting a part or you're you know on social media or you're uh, it's just it's it's much more difficult to be able to compare it's almost like um what we saw back then what we saw at bogey and bacall we'll never really see again you know, mm. we're going to see other wonderful things, but we're not going to see that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And the context is, to- as you say, the context is totally. I mean, if, if right. I think about real life love affairs, you're, you're thinking, I don't know, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck now or Brangelina back in the day. Right. You know, Kay, Pat and Stu, I've forgotten how to say it now. Robert Pattinson and Kirsten Stewart is what I'm. Kate Stewart and right, R. Right. Pats, you know. It, and, and well, and many of those, like especially the the Brangelina, were, were simply reruns of Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. You know, I mean, it it was, um, and and they're marketed now, you know, mm. in ways that that weren't then. You know, um, not to say that Bogart and Bacall weren't marketed; they definitely were. Right, but it, it was a. Um, it wasn't a 24/7 idea it was a sense that that there was this mystery and that and that we couldn't really penetrate what was going on behind that mystery and nor did we expect to nor did we even necessarily know there was a mystery now mm. i think we presume there's a mystery all the time we say well is this real and mm. you know they want us to believe that it's real um it's it's just it's a whole different uh, ball game 
Yeah, I, 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 it's funny because I, I recently had experience of uh, uh, in uh, talking to Amber Heard, and the whole thing around that is just like, um, there would be so many classical Hollywood stars who would be undone by you know mobile yeah. phone technology because that those scenes, as ugly as they might be, um, you know, were probably being played out millions of times uh, in oh. other kitchens and in other parts of Hollywood. Right. It's just that these guys are are, are recording themselves rather stupidly. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, but technology has 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 changed our relationship with celebrity. It has changed our relationship with entertainment. Um, the line between what is entertainment and what is not is is very thin, you know. And it's yeah, it's 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 why I say and people say, oh, will you ever write a book that's about Hollywood in the you know two thousands or. 2010s or something i say oh absolutely not <laughs> because it's, it's a world I, don't, I don't recognize i i i i can't imagine what i would possibly have to say yeah absolutely that's another generation there's a there's a william <laughs> mann junior 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 who can do that yeah, you know, somebody i don't know how people will do these books in the future because you know people actually did this strange and rare thing back in the day we actually wrote letters to each other and you know and you got letters and you know they're preserved in archives and i can see what people were saying you know it doesn't exist anymore no not the hard copy certainly not no hard copies brilliant william I'd, I'd, uh, final question um for our uh, readers i always love for our readers well they are readers because they're listening to a podcast called writers on film so of course they're readers so for our listeners and readers um could you recommend a film book and the the choice is absolutely open to you something that maybe influenced you or something you've just read and enjoyed wow yeah it's so so many um i'm thinking uh no, uh, nobody just says one, by the way. Everybody cheats. <laughs> my gosh. Easy Rider's Raging Bull. Peter Biskind, yes. Peter Biskind. That's that's such an important book about the um the, the changeover to Hollywood. I mean, I also really love this is this shows my my interest in it. So that's my interest in the later later Hollywood, but I'm also really interested in early, early Hollywood. So I love Kevin Brownlow's The Praise Gone By. Mm. I think it's such an evocative piece on on uh, the silent era um particular biographies that that i've that i've really liked um i think um um scott iman's book on john wayne was remarkable it's um, a great book. john wayne he's never been a, a real favorite of mine but i thought the book was really insightful and and really interesting and uh, Pat McGilligan, I think anything that Patrick McGilligan has written, he's done a number of biographies, but he also did a really great series of interviews with screenwriters um, who had been um, blacklisted mm. and important, really important um, books. So anything that Patrick McGilligan has written. Um, yeah. And and um, and uh, Janine Bassinger's recent um, book on, um, and gosh, I'm forgetting the title, but it was on... Um, movie stars um gosh. oh yeah the uh, um the star making machine is yeah that one? The, the, I've, yeah she did, it, she did it with sam wasson oh um, no well that's in that case it's called hollywood and oral history hollywood and oral history that's it yes because yes. sam wasson came on to speak and i need to get janine 
Basinger on because she's uh, uh, Sam set keeps saying I'll put you in touch with her so you can have yeah, her. Yeah, one 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 of the uh, one of the greats. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, William, thanks so much for, well, a brilliant book. I loved reading about it. I loved the way these stories came together. It reads like a novel. It really does. And mm-hmm. you you have that, the thing I aspire to in my own writing and that I love uh, a book to do, which is it really puts you there. You know, you have sort of the, the, you have the weather and what people, you know what I mean? You have the texture of the place as well as the events and the people, you know, and I, I try to try to do that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. It's a, a real, not, it's a real novelistic feel to it. I love that. So, so thanks very much for coming and talking to me. It's been delightful. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns